What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. It is currently Tuesday, June 21st at like 1.30 in the morning. Right as I sat down to start this recording, it was 1, 2, 3 a.m. So that's a sign. Yes, it's chaotic, but I am just doing what I got to do, okay? So I don't really have a ton of announcements. Just wanted to let you all know that I got new stickers in stock. If you're following the Instagram, you saw that. I literally got them like two hours ago in the mail. Well, they got to the house earlier than that, but I just got them out of the mailbox. So I'll post some more pictures for you all to see. If you would like some, let me know. But I would like to go ahead and just dive straight into today's topic because it's a doozy. There's a lot of information. I condensed it down a lot. Um, But let's go ahead and get started. So for this week's topic, I decided to read a book because there's a lot of information out there. Today's topic is Cult of the Dead Cow, and I've actually talked a little bit about them before in the Deep Dark Web episode, but I just barely breezed by it, so we're going to do a deep dive into that today. The book that I read was called, or is called, Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World by Joseph Min. And this is where I got the bulk of today's research. Like I said, there's tons of stuff on online. This is basically about the internet. So, of course, everyone in this book has a presence on the internet. There's so much stuff that you can dive into. And I don't have a lot of technical knowledge, so I feel like this book gave me kind of a good summary. But I won't lie to you, this was it's like 250 pages. There were some cool pictures in there. But it's one of those books where, like, Every single sentence is loaded. It's just constant information. I almost, it was a little bit of like overload to me. I definitely recommend reading the book. I could not do it any justice by sitting here and like reading you the whole book. You know what I mean? So there's a ton of information that I didn't include because you should just go read the book, support the author. Um, It's definitely interesting if you're into this kind of thing. So with that, let's get into it. We're going to start off with some key vocabulary that we'll need for today's episode. So first, let's start with calling cards. So according to Wikipedia, a calling card is a small card usually resembling a credit card used to pay for telephone services. We don't really use these that much anymore. I think that you can get like prepaid phone cards now still, but I've never used one. I'm 23. I have a feeling a lot of my listeners don't really have a lot of experience with that, so just wanted to explain that. The next term is blue boxes. Wikipedia says that a blue box is an electronic device that produces tones used to generate the in-band signaling tones formerly used within the North American long-distance telephone network to send line status and called number information over voice circuits. So this allowed the user referred to as a, I'm putting air quotes, freaker, and that's P-H-R-E-A, K-E-R. So it's like 
phone hacker combined to make the word freaker to surreptitiously place long distance calls that would be billed to another number or dismissed entirely as an incomplete call. A number of similar color boxes, so blue boxes, red boxes, whatever, were also created to control other aspects of the phone network. And so freaking, like I said, is the telephonic equivalent of hacking. The next word we're going to define is text files. Wikipedia says that a text file is a kind of computer file that is structured as a sequence of lines of electronic text. A text file exists stored as data within a computer file system. I have Ziggy in the room with me, and he's just like rolling around on the ground, so sorry if you can hear him. The next word on the list is bulletin boards. So according to TechTarget, a bulletin board system is a computer or an application dedicated to the sharing or exchange of messages or other files on a network. Originally, an electronic version of the type of bulletin board found on the wall in many kitchens and workplaces, I'm thinking of like my elementary school, the BBS was used, oh, and BBS is just bulletin board system. The BBS was used to post simple messages between users. The BBS became the primary kind of online community through the 80s and 90s before the World Wide Web arrived, and it was accessible from a dial-up modem, telnet, or the internet. And because it originated before the graphical user interface became prevalent, the BBS interface was text-based. So they were posting text files to bulletin boards. So we're going to talk a lot about bulletin boards and text files today. The book that I told you about, I think I said the author's name. If I did not, his name is Joseph Men. So according to Men, to dial interesting bulletin boards outside of your area code meant hefty long-distance charges on the home phone bill. Anyone without rich and forgiving parents needed someone else's credit card or a five-digit code from a long-distance company like MCI or some actual hacking abilities. The easiest of those to come by was the five-digit code, which could be cracked by hand with repeated trial and error by those who were truly dedicated. The winning digits spread like hot gossip in the school lunchroom and by bulletin board postings at night. That worked until too many people used them and MCI noticed and revoked the number, which would usually take about a month. Then a new one would be discovered and passed around, and if you spent enough time at it, you could find a bulletin board with just your kind of content and just your kind of attitude. Most boards let you download what they had and repost it on your own board if you had a modem that was fast enough that you could let run all night to digest a big file. That is, if nobody needed to make a regular call so you could stay connected. So that was all from men. And he was just explaining how like kids in the 80s were finding their way onto these bulletin boards. And we'll get more into that in a minute. Got a couple more things to define for you. White hat versus black hat. So according to Kaspersky, Black hat hackers access systems illegally with malicious intent and often for personal gain, and white hat hackers work with companies to help identify weaknesses in their systems and make corresponding updates. They do this to ensure that black hat hackers can't access the system's data illegally. If you listened to the Deep Dark Web Part 1 episode that I did with Pablo, we were in the black hat chat, and we didn't really know what that meant, so... While we did come across what seemed like decent, awesome, cool people in that chat, um, black hat, I guess, inherently means like they're just they're just hacking to hack and they don't care if it's illegal or not. Um, I don't know if those people necessarily were doing illegal things, but 
that seems to be what the name of the chat room indicates, so I just thought that was funny. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986 makes it a crime for anyone to access without authorization a computer or computer system used by a financial institution, U.S. government agency, or any organization or individual involved in interstate or foreign commerce or communication. So this act was a pretty big deal in the 80s because everyone started like learning how to hack. Well, not everyone, but people who were learning how to hack were like, oh God, like here we go. Paul Leonard was one of CDC's like members. I don't know why I said it like that. One of CDC's like members. And he was the first person prosecuted under the act in 1986. All right. And my last like buzzword is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And this is the preeminent legal defense group for hackers and researchers born of the CDC and adjacent hacking groups. So let's get into it. I think I've said that three times already, but whatever. Let me give you a little bit of an overview of the CDC. So it was founded in 1984. They never have more than about 20 members at a time. And they invented the term hacktivism, which is defined as hacking in defense of human rights. The CDC, oh, and CDC stands for cult of the dead cow, not center for disease control. Well, it does stand for that too. But in this context, when I say CDC, I'm talking about cult of the dead cow. So the CDC are responsible for tools used by criminals, spies, and high network administrators to this day. Basically, the CDC started was started by teenagers as a, I, I would describe it as like a criminal adjacent organization. Like they're not necessarily criminals, um, but they walk amongst them, if you will. So the CDC had their publications first, the text files. And then hackers were associated. I guess they were technically hackers and freakers and whatever, but illegal hackers were associated. They didn't have a permanent address or a meeting place in the beginning. They didn't have criminal intentions. They just created a community with general knowledge and camaraderie, which happened to entice and attract people from all walks of life, including criminals. So some hackers don't really hack things to make things better. They just hack to see if they can, while other hackers kind of have this moral code where they're like, I'm hacking so that I can see how I can improve this process. So it was said about this CDC that the CDC people had skills but didn't take themselves seriously. So they didn't take themselves seriously. They were an enormous inside joke for hackers. Not necessarily like they were the butt of the joke, but like they were making fun of people who did take themselves seriously. Kevin Wheeler was one of the founders, and he said that the CDC was very much about personality and writing. For a long time, the test or evaluation was to write T-files. Everyone was expected to write things if they were in the CDC. If we were stoked to have more hacker-oriented people, it was because we'd be excited to have a broader range in our T-files. So it was kind of just this, like, publication. It's kind of like my podcast. Like, I just want to have, like, people on here. Um, and if I get the juicy content, I get the juicy content, okay? So let's talk more about Kevin. Kevin moved from Ohio to Texas in 1983 when he was 13 years old. He had an Apple II for two years at this point, And I talked a little bit about the different computers that were... Um, kind of the first computers ever in the deep dark web part two. So he had the Apple II for two years at this point. He was like technologically advanced in comparison to other kids. But when he moved to Texas, 
some of the other kids in town were already like technologically inclined and they had built their own internet bulletin boards. So Kevin and his new friends in Texas were like, let's make our own bulletin boards. And they really wanted to talk about heavy metal and Star Wars and stuff like that. And they called themselves the Pan-Galactic Entropy. In 1985, Kevin had a summer job at a computer store. And he brought in enough money to save up $715 and buy himself a hard drive so he could launch his very own bulletin board, which he called Demon Roach Underground. So Kevin meets this kid named Brandon Brewer, and he had his own bulletin board as well called the KGB, and he had posted real bomb-making instructions on his bulletin board and other hacking advice on it, which I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I remember hearing like stories all the time when I was a kid, like, you better be careful, like, you used to be able to find bomb instructions on the internet, and I was like, really? But I guess that was true. So Brandon would, like, sneak around outside of businesses and try to find information in their trash that would help them hack, help him hack them or, like, you know, maybe find calling cards or stuff in their trash that he could steal and use. So Brandon and Kevin decide they want to join forces that are going to combine their bulletin boards and they're going to become the cult of the dead cow. So this is a quote from the book. A friend of the Brewers was house-sitting, spotted an MCI calling card, wrote down the number, and shared it with the brothers who dialed into... Oh, Brandon had a brother, by the way, but he was kind of, like, barely in the book. I think his name was Ty. But shared it with the brothers who dialed into other bulletin boards and told readers there to check out the Brewers' board. After too many unexplained charges showed up on the bill of the card's owner, he called the police who visited the friend, who named names, and soon men were wearing suits in their living room at the Brewer house. And like 30 or so years later, um, Joseph Min interviewed him, and he was not really sure exactly what happened. He was like, I don't remember. Maybe the men took the computer away as evidence. Maybe my dad threw it away. I'm not sure. But regardless, now Brandon doesn't have a computer, and he's basically out of cult of the dead cow, just kind of by default because he doesn't have a computer to really benefit or like contribute to the group. So that sucks. Um, And he was kind of like a big influence in the beginning, but he never really made his way back around. The third originating member, his name is Bill Brown. In the late 1980s, the main criteria for membership in the CDC were the following. One, to be known to an existing member. So you had to know somebody in the group. Two, don't be boring, and three, don't be an asshole. So pretty easy. As it started to kind of develop, they created a text file. I think Bill made this, and it was like mocking the Bible as like the origins of how the cult of the dead cow came to be. And I'm pretty sure you can still find it on textfiles.com, which is basically a website that just houses like old original text files, which is kind of cool. It was really slow to load on my computer, so I was like, "Eh, don't really want to look at that. I looked at a little bit of it, but I didn't go super in-depth. The CDC, they read a Unix operating system book, and they posted software commands that circulated the internet for years, and it was just kind of like a good resource for people to access as computers started to become more accessible. I think you can still probably find it. But anyways, so the CDC were teenagers, and though they were skilled, they did not take themselves seriously and they were still approachable. The CDC gained popularity through other bulletin boards and hacking publications such as 2600 and FRAC, and they started to link up with other boards, and the group grew, and more members joined. 
So Carrie, who her internet handle was Lady Carolyn, was the first lady to join the group at 15 years old. So I love that for her. At this point, the members of the CDC include Kevin, Bill, Carrie, Paul, and Matt. Topics of the CDC and partnering partnering bulletin boards covered a wide range with lighter subjects like general commentary on pop culture at the time, just building a community of like-minded people, discussing conspiracy theories, and then darker areas, including pirated software, credit cards, um, tips for breaking into big machines at phone companies, corporations, government agencies. So it was really kind of like the whole gamut. So one of the members hacked a brokerage and used its address database to help his uncle deliver a large number of toilets to someone who had, quote, wronged him, which I love. Yeah, so basically the group was brought together by their love of everything weird. They also seemed very tied together through, like, underground music. The underground music scene was a big theme throughout this book, which I was... Not that I was, like, surprised. I just wasn't expecting to, like, be reading so much about that. And, like, many of them ended up being musicians, which was pretty cool. One member, Jesse Dryden, joined the CDC in in the 1990s, like, early. He was born to Sally Mann, the ultimate groupie-turned-lawyer and writer, and Spencer Dryden, the drummer of Jefferson Airplane. So this was really cool. His parents were closely involved with the Merry Pranksters, the Acid Tests, and the Grateful Dead, which is all dope stuff. And he he just brought something new and different to the table. So John Perry Barlow, family friend of the Drydens and lyricist for the Grateful Dead, said that, as with the hackers, The thing about acid heads is they think authority is funny. So he was like making a comment on the comparison between the hacking groups of this time and the acid heads, which I was just like, I love that. But this statement about saying like they just think authority is funny, it reminded me of the Ashley Madison episode that I did where hackers were interviewed about their thoughts on the doxing of like the 30 million people or however many it was. And a lot of them said, like, the main reason that people do stuff like that is, one, for morals, like, hacktivism. But if it's not for morals, then they just do it because it's funny. Because nothing is private on the internet. Like, it's all free game. So just don't forget that. Everything you do on the internet is never private. Jesse used the internet as somewhat of an escape or place of refuge growing up, as he lived, like, a very non-traditional life with his parents being invested in the music industry. His mom spent some time in jail. He went on tour with metal band Dokken or Dokken at 12 years old, and he faked going to school for four months. His dad was, like, in the band and traveling. So he just kind of lived this very, like, rolling stone kind of lifestyle, if you will. He spent a lot of time traveling, going to rock shows, clubs, whatever. Um, But despite being very charismatic and well-liked, he was shy. So that is a little bit of like a introduction to some of our main players here. And now I want to kind of segue into conventions, conferences, all that good stuff. So in 1990, Jesse was 19 years old and he strategically leaked word on bulletin boards about the first annual Xmas Con, which we'll be referring to going forward as HoHoCon because that's what everybody calls it. And they said that it would be three days over Christmas break at a La Quinta in near the Houston airport. 
HoHoCon was one of the first public hacking conventions where they invited all hackers, journalists, and federal agents. Jesse was inspired by private hacking conferences like SummerCon, which was hosted by Frack Magazine, but he wanted it to be completely open to the public. HoHoCon was a combination of people, gang-related hackers, hackers that were like straight-laced and like worked for nice businesses or intelligence agencies and like everything in between, people who were just interested in it. I mean, they literally invited the feds and like, I don't think they came the first year, but it was just open to anyone who wanted to go. So this was a place for people to meet and bond. And like, I mean, you have to think about it. These people are meeting each other on the internet. We still do that, you know, like obviously, but they're wary of each other on the internet. They they don't know who is or who's not an informant. They've got that 1986 act going on. So this was a place for people to finally get to like meet and feel each other out um, without a computer screen being in the way. There were tons of drugs at these conventions, particularly acid. And apparently they would take acid and just like bond with each other, which I'm like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. HoHoCon sounds dope. I You should go read the book. There's a lot of different stories of things that happen. Like they would go out into the desert and like take drugs and shoot guns and just all sorts of stuff. That might have been DEF CON actually. But either way, these hacker conventions are crazy. They had like strippers and go-go dancers and the drugs and mayhem. I would have loved it. I would have loved it. So eventually though, HoHoCon... 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 HoHoCon became more work than it was fun for Jesse, so he ended up stopping putting it together after the fifth convention. And so this is where Jesse's story gets a little weird. Jesse was known for telling white lies and exaggerated stories about his life. He had been through a lot growing up, like I mentioned, um, just growing up in the shadow of famous parents who were not exactly there for him all the time. Not that they didn't love him or want to be there, it's just that was the lifestyle that they grew up or he grew up in and that they had. So, and just a sign of the times again, but friends said that though he had found refuge online, many of his friends were solely virtual or were informants. And I guess like maybe after meeting people at these conventions, he was like, Oh, like these people are informants or I can't really trust them. But anyways, he just kind of was, like I mentioned, he was well liked, but I think he felt very alone. And Things just, it kind of started piling up on him, life. Like, lots of things started happening. At one point, Jesse ended up having to care for his father, who had a terminal illness. And then he later experienced a fire that destroyed all of his father's memorabilia, which is heartbreaking. And then a flood destroyed his stepfather's recording studio. Just a lot of things were going on. And eventually, Jesse basically dropped off the face of the earth. So Jesse's mother... Two of his former roommates, or I don't know if they were roommates or maybe like partners, but it was just people that lived with him. And talented CDC hackers tried to find Jesse after his last sighting in 2009. Some people think that he's dead, but in mid-2018, a database showed that he had a valid Texas driver's license. So like the theory is that he must have renewed it or something, but others speculate that he used his social engineering skills to just dip. I wonder if he got himself into some shit. Um, because I mean, I just, I wish I could have been like a fly on the wall or like lived during this era. I always say that I feel like I had a different, like a past life or something in the eighties. And after doing all this research, I'm like, oh, I wish I could have been there to see all this weird, like early analog vibe kind of stuff going on. 
So by the time HoHoCon was over, DEF CON had ramped up and taken over anyways, so there wasn't really a gap um, when Jesse stopped running HoHoCon. DEF CON was a volunteer-ran Las Vegas hacker convention, not sure if it's still volunteer-ran, and it's basically like the largest hacker convention today. The more expensive spin-off convention for professionals is the Black Hat Convention. Okay, so that's conventions. I'm sure there's more, but that's all I wanted to talk about. Let's talk about the Legion of Doom, which I've mentioned before. The Legion of Doom began in 1980 and was created by Lex Luthor. That's his internet handle. And I think I mentioned that before, and I was like, Lex Luthor's a cool name. And I, f- I like knew it was from something, but I didn't know what. I'm not a superhero gal. I'm not going to be watching like Marvel or DC or anything like that. I have since been informed that that's a Superman villain. So don't come for me. I could give literally zero shits about superheroes. So I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's just how I feel about it. Um, So yeah, that's what that came from. The Legion of Doom, L-O-D, was infamous and members got caught up in a sweep of arrests by the Secret Service at SummerCon in 1988. So that was kind of like a big eye-opener for a lot of hackers at this time. According to men, when I say men, I'm talking about the author of the book, Joseph Min, not just like men in general. According to men, Frack Magazine was very closely tied to the Legion of Doom and stories circulated on outside bulletin boards the same way that CDC files did but the content included security trade secrets. So they were like just being very, I guess, open, like not super smart about what they were sharing. Unlike the other big hacking publication, 2600, Frack was online, which left it more vulnerable to prosecution at a time when courts had not explicitly extended freedom of the press to the digital realm. So in 1989, this is still the continuation of that quote, Craig Nadorf, who was the co-founder of Frack and very close friends with many people in the Legion of Doom. He published a version of Bell South's enhanced 911 manual, an internal document explaining some of how the revamped emergency call system worked. And it had been provided by a member of the Atlanta Legion of Doom, who was also arrested and pleaded guilty. Nadorf was charged with being part of a scheme to defraud AT&T, and by the time of his July 1990 trial, Nadorf was majoring in political science in college, and he disinclined to settle. Nadorf knew the manual had been stolen, but he hadn't broken into machines himself and had not profited from the theft. Frack was free to readers. So I just want to point this out. Full circle moment. If you listen to the Illuminati episode, we discussed Lloyd Blankenship, who worked for Steve Jackson Games, the creators of the Illuminati. It's my bedtime. The creators of the Illuminati card game and the Secret Service came and raided them and arrested them and took all their servers away. Yeah, so he was in the Legion of Doom and he was arrested for this crime. He was associated with this somehow. And I just, I love when my episodes come full circle. I feel like they've been doing that a lot recently. I hope you guys like that shit too because I was reading this and I was like, I wonder if that was like associated with that because it was talking about the Secret Service being tipped off that they had some information about how the 911 process works. I was like, hmm, let me put my little skeptic brain together. And yep, it is all connected. Lloyd Blankenship was in the Legion of Doom. But yeah, so basically, Nadorf's arrest was like what started the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which was like the 
the group I had mentioned that does a lot of, they're the lawyers for hackers pretty much. So they helped him in that situation. Min states that the CDC survived these arrest sweeps because, like we mentioned, it's more of a social space, a refuge for hackers blowing off steam, rather than a place to plot actual illegal activity. The CDC was able to see how the Legion of Doom handled themselves online and learned exactly what not to do. The CDC also survived the first battle between hacker groups, the Legion of Doom, and the Masters of Deception. So now I'm going to tell you about the Masters of Deception. I love all these corny-ass names. So the Masters of Deception was a group formed after the Legion of Doom, but before the CDC. So Masters of Deception and Legion of Doom ended up hacking each other and fighting, and Masters of Deception ended up crossing a big line in the hacker community, and they called the FBI on the Legion of Doom and ended up getting some of them jail time. Despite close ties to the Legion of Doom leaders, the CDC did not take a side in this war with Masters of Deception. God, mouthfuls. And this ended in the demise of both groups, actually, because they just kept coming for each other. It's like, dude, you're supposed to be on each other's side. Like, what the hell? The CDC learned not to fight with other hacker groups or call the FBI. Good rules of thumb. So this hacker war did, however, help intelligence agencies realize that hackers had knowledge that could be useful to them. So we'll kind of come back to this in a little bit. So now I want to talk to you about another hacker group called Loft. So Peter Zatko is known online as Mudge, and Mudge fronted the pro-security or white hat group called The Loft. And it's spelled L-0-P-H-T. So the P-H is like a, um, what's the word? They're alluding to freaking and frack and all that stuff. Loft was founded in 1992 and was another hacker group that worked extremely close to the CDC. And like I said, CDC is not necessarily black hat or white hat. They're kind of gray, ambiguous hat, if you will. Many of the members in the Loft were also in the CDC. So they're just kind of this like symbiotic hacker group situation. Loft had a physical working space, though, so that was what was kind of different about them. They quickly became a location for members to store their computer hardware and work on various projects. And this was fun because, like, many of them started living together, building camaraderie that other hacker groups, even including the CDC, didn't necessarily have because a lot of hacker groups were solely virtual. But eventually the CDC and the Loft, um, like I said, they just start working more and more together. So um, this does kind of work to the CDC's benefit. According to Min, many of the original members of the Loft and the CDC were born in the period between 1969 and 1971, and that made them the perfect age to take advantage of the magic window between when War Games, this big movie that inspired a lot of hackers, came out in 1983, and when the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act made unauthorized computer access a criminal act in 1986. On average, kids born in those years were also more likely to have young parents with a critical view of the U.S. government. So Mudge grew up in the Deep South. His father was a music professor at the University of Alabama, and Mudge learned to play violin at a very early age, and he also learned how to break copy protections and software for his Apple II from his father. So his dad taught him many things, and his dad was kind of like not really super big on authority. 
Mudge went to Berkeley for music and technology, and that was where he met MIT students and joined the 2600 in-person meeting groups. This is when he started Loft in Boston. So Mudge has like a really big reputation. He often would let people think that he knew and did more than he did, even though he knew and did a lot. He was very infamous, and he was one of the most qualified hackers of this era. He would hack, and he would give information to the public, to defenders and attackers, depending on the nature of the information. And a bit, I, the way I would describe him is like, he's kind of like a hacking Robin Hood, if you will, the hacker's hacker. Mudge and the early members of Loft would go trashing, which just means like diving in dumpsters for usable equipment, manuals, phone directories, anything that would list machines and software running inside of companies and hint at how they could connect to them and operate once they were in. So they weren't looking for like calling cards or anything like that. They just, they want any sort of information that they can find. They also shopped at the MIT flea market, which I didn't know was a thing, so I guess they would like get rid of like equipment they were no longer using. But basically the loft wanted to hack without doing anything illegal. They wanted to work for the greater good of people who didn't understand the true vulnerabilities of the online world, and they didn't want to get shut down for doing it. Eventually, the loft morphed into an actual business called Loft Heavy Industries, where they sold products that helped test the strengths of passwords. They also published security advisories informing the public of issues in company software. And this is what caught the CDC's attention. Mudge joined the CDC in 1996, and he took what he learned in CDC and applied it back at the loft, which worked on similar problems, like I said. But the loft was treated more respectfully by the media because they were more, like, polished in their approach, where CDC was kind of, like I said, they don't take themselves seriously. They have more of, like, a jokey vibe to them. It's supposed to be more feel-good than anything else, where the loft was, like, trying to use their hacking skills to make the internet safer. Not that the CDC wasn't, but they were just doing it a little bit more professionally. Eventually, loft morphed again into the first big consulting group of skilled hackers called At Stake, which I'm not really going to go super into detail here. There's just so much information about this topic um, so let's go ahead and move on to the internet becoming public to everyone else in the world. In August of 1995, the internet became accessible to the naive general public. The ubiquitous internet killed off most bulletin boards, but CDC managed to survive and stay relevant because at this point it had notoriety, it had actual security experts, and at this point it had the physical base at the loft which moved the old CDC text files to web pages it hosted. So basically, if you were in the loft or the CDC, you could like rent a space at this office space that the loft had. The CDC gained more popularity and press attention with the rise of the internet. And according to men, the CDC's open pursuit of attention struck many hackers as refreshingly candid at a time when other hackers were posing as criminal geniuses or visionaries. At this point, everyone wanted to be a part of the CDC, so they created this like spinoff group called the Ninja Strike Force, which would later go south for them, and we'll talk about that as well. But the Ninja Strike Force basically acted as like moderators to keep out all the people who wanted to join, um, like join the main CDC group. Sam Anthony was the first on the Ninja Strike Force, and he wanted to keep the group small and invite only, but they were willing to expand for people who were the right fit. 
And some of the first members that were added were Chris Weisepal, Window Snyder, Lamor Fried, which I tried to find pronunciations of this, and there's lots of different pronunciations, so I'm sorry if it's like Limor or Limmer, but Lamor. And early Apple and Netscape engineer Tom Dell, who ran Rotten.com, which is so cool. So let's talk about Windows. In 1997, Windows was so vulnerable that basically any computer running on Windows could be hacked if the hacker had, like, basic knowledge of the operating system. So CDC member Josh Buckbinder tried reaching out to Microsoft and being like, listen, you got to fix this, but they just really didn't give a shit. So he decided that he would create a software and release it to the public for people to use that would help them hack into people's computers and show the world how easy it was to get into a Windows operating system. The reason he did this was because he was like, okay, if we send this out and people start hacking, then Microsoft is going to have to do something about Windows because obviously they don't give a shit about what I told them. So to make sure that Josh was like not going to get in trouble for this, he even called the FBI and spoke to an agent. And he was like, is this illegal if I write this code or this software and send it out and people use it for bad intentions? Like if that's if I just make something and then people take it and make it bad, is it illegal for me to do that? And the agent was like, I'm not really sure. And he was like, well, I need to know. And so the agent like went and figured it out for him. And he came back and he was like, we would really rather that you did not do this because this is not good, but it's technically not illegal for you to write this software. So Josh was like, dope, I'm doing it. According to Min, they called the software Back Orifice, which is like a crude pun on Microsoft's Back Office software. It was up to the hacker how to install the program on a target machine, but it could be combined with any desired executable program. Executable, why did I say it like that? like a word processor or calculator, and then they would email it to the intended victim. So CDC did not advertise the fact that it had taken mercy on Microsoft and the young antivirus industry at this time by setting the default port for inbound traffic as 31337, which is hacker speak for elite. All anyone had to do to stop off the shelf installations by non-coders was block traffic to that port. So that was from the book. They released Back Orifice at DEF CON 1998, the year I was born, and they made it this, like, huge spectacle, as they did. Like, all these conventions were very dramatized. Drugs, party, fun, whatever. Kevin goes out on stage, Kevin Wheeler, like, one of the founders, and he's, like, rapping about the CDC. He's got a big chain on. It's, like, really corny. They throw this huge party, and they start giving out the software for free. They literally were just throwing the software into the crowd because back in the day you'd get a CD and put it in your computer and download the software. So as this happened, Microsoft is getting information about it and they made announcements that there was nothing to worry about. There's they're like, you have nothing to worry about. Don't listen to these guys at DEF CON, yada, yada, yada. But articulate hackers were saying quite the opposite. They were like, no, this is like legit. People are about to start getting hacked. And then tons of people start getting hacked. And it was like really serious, big deal. The CDC got tons of fan mail, and they got tons of hate mail and death threats. And Kevin said he warned the group not to get cocky, reminding them that CDC had started by mocking the Legion of Doom and other self-serious coders. The point was to have fun and be useful. Kevin and Bill had always held that CDC was not about technology itself. It was about connection and communication. Microsoft basically did nothing. Lawyers argued that it was not their responsibility. It was something like the argument 
was something like because it was licensing rather than a sale, they couldn't be held responsible for faulty products, something along those lines. I might be butchering that. But anyways, Microsoft came out with a new version called Microsoft NT, and they were like, it's super secure. And so the CDC was like, okay, let's make a hacking software for this version. So here's a little interjection. The Loft decided that they were going to make a PSA about the security issues with Windows. And according to Min, this is a quote, Microsoft emailed and calmly asked that in the future, the Loft hold off publishing details of security flaws until a patch was ready. So the group began negotiating with Microsoft and other companies. It would offer a month's notice before going public while the companies asked for more time, and often they reached a compromise in the middle and the current standard of coordinated disclosure began. Reading the disclosures made it easier for malicious hackers to learn most of what they needed to launch an attack based on the flaws, but everyone who patched right away would be safe. Without the disclosures, only the hackers who took the effort to reverse engineer the patches would have been able to launch the attacks, but there would have been less public awareness of the problems. So this is like a big deal. Like Loft is doing big things for people, working with companies, because like, I think the argument was that they wanted to put out these public advisories so that they could help the public know that they were the software was insecure. But sometimes like maybe a software company, you know, that's not their intention to be insecure and like if they could just address the problems and fix the patches or send out the patches or whatever the fuck. Um <laughs> I'm sleepy. Um then that would be better for the greater good as well. And like, if the loft is all about doing what's best for the greater good, then maybe like not drawing a ton of attention to this so that like the black hat hackers don't immediately start hacking people and the company has a chance to fix it, that might be better. So that was kind of where this came from. So now the government is getting concerned about the safety of confidential information and they team up with loft in order to get hacking insights and information on how to secure their information. Christian Rue, a recent CDC draft, was the decided member to be the best person to write the new version of the back orifice. So though he was being paid by the loft at this time, they couldn't really be associated with back orifice 2000, so it had to come out under the CDC. Um, because while loft and CDC were affiliated, the loft was trying to be more of a serious approach, and they didn't want to be affiliated with like DEFCON and like the rapping and all the corny shit that was going on there um, because they were like, this is serious. And there's drugs and there's crime at these conventions. So they're just trying to, you know, save themselves. Mudge said that Back Orifice 2 couldn't have been produced by Loft or like under the name of Loft because it already had stank on it, which I love. So this time the group decided that they were going to release the code and make it open source to show that they weren't trying to like hide anything from this. Because the first time Back Orifice came out, the FBI did an investigation into it to make sure that it wasn't like have to make sure it didn't have a bunch of backdoors for the CDC to go in and get information. And they did do the investigation and found out that that wasn't the case. So they're like, all right, like they're not trying to do this to, for their own personal gain. They just made this software. So they were like, okay, if we do open source and people can change it, then maybe they'll realize that, like, we don't have anything up our sleeves. But it also made it easier for hackers to modify it, rendering antivirus programs less effective. So it just kind of made it, like, super easy to hack people. The CDC wanted to avoid legal liability, so they hired a lawyer to consult with during the creation of Back Orifice 2, which I'm like, okay, that's smart. And 
At DEF CON 1999, they released the second version of Back Orifice with all the same tactics, with Kevin rapping, yada, yada, yada. But somehow, apparently somebody like accidentally planted a virus on the copies that were given out at DEF CON. I don't remember exactly what happened. It was like something, somebody like burned them from a computer that had a virus. I don't know. Something along those lines, something weird. Um, and like, obviously this looked bad on the CDC, but they immediately apologized and like remediated the issue and the version that they had online for people to be able to download did not have the virus. So it was just like an infected batch of software that was given out, um, which is kind of crazy that they were able to just come back from that in my opinion. But so if things weren't already getting weird, like it's going to get weirder and a little more serious, but I want to talk about Laird Brown. I think it's how you say it, L-A-I-R-D, Laird Brown, and the Hong Kong Blondes and how Laird kind of leads this group to hacktivism. So Laird Brown is known by his online handle, Oxblood Ruffin. And according to Min, Laird is the father of hacktivism. He invented facts and was closer than his followers realized to Western intelligence figures, but he drove moral considerations to the heart of a global debate and ended up saving countless lives. So Laird Brown joins the CDC and he's like, y'all have to stand for something aside from tech security. How about the Chinese government and their censorship of information, particularly on the internet? And they're like, you know what? All right. So this is where the Hong Kong blondes come in and like, honestly, just bear with me on this. Okay. Like I think I was like having a stroke when I was reading this or something. I'm just going to say it outright. Laird basically made this group up and he said that the Hong Kong blondes were this group of Chinese hacktivists that formally started in 1996. And as he had joined the CDC, like he came out and was like, yeah, we're offering them advice. And by them, he just means like he was talking to one of the members of the Hong Kong blondes and like giving them advice. He said the Hong Kong blondes claim to have found significant security holes within Chinese government computer networks, particularly systems related to satellite communications. So big deal. Like, this is a big deal. The CDC published fake interviews with Blondie Wong, which is like, I guess, one of the people of the Hong Kong blondes as a way to get attention in the press, like for their cause. And even members within the CDC were like, what is this? Like, is this a real interview? And... Laird says there was supposedly a real person named Blondie Wong and that he was protecting his identity, like he didn't want to tell people who that was. And he said that only about three-fourths of that interview that they published was real and the rest was just him kind of like gushing it up a little bit, zhuzhing it up, if you will. I don't know. There was a lot of confusion around this. And over a decade after all of this goes down, he Laird actually says that he only ever met Blondie, but the rest was basically made up. So, like, he is saying that there's a real person um, that he's calling Blondie, but, like, the whole group and everything isn't necessarily real. So, thankfully, not all of the press fell for this. They're like, all right, the CDC's doing good things, like, back orifice is legit, but the Hong Kong Blondes was not verifiable, so... Yeah, regardless of the fake group, Laird still discussed real issues that were going on in China and suggested real activists that could be supported through hacktivism. So I think he just did this to like really stir up people, their attention to look in the places that needed to be looked at. But like, I guess maybe going the traditional route wasn't getting the attention that he felt like it deserved. So he was like, let me just make up this story. 
get people's attention and then we can kind of move as far away from that as possible and actually address the real issues. Hackers and activists did take notice of this blonde story and some defaced Chinese government websites. And Min said that the U.S. legions of the underground in December of 1999 called on allies to destroy networks in China and Iraq. So a lot came from this. And people said that Laird ruined CDC by making it political. And yes and no. I mean, he, he definitely changed it from its original trajectory. But I think Based on the original group of the CDC, like, I feel like at the end of the day, they were always trying to, while they were being, like, silly and stuff, they were always trying to do what was best for people. So if it means going into politics, you know, whatever. So eventually, the group did come out and say that the Hong Kong blondes were not real in order to gain trust back and to not be seen as liars. Or not that they had lost trust, but just to be like, okay, listen, we lied about that. Let's move forward. Um, because government agencies were considering pouring tons of money into figuring out who the Hong Kong blondes were. However, there was some investigation performed, and it proved that there weren't any hacker groups in China aside from, like, patriotic ones that were, I guess, on China's side, for lack of a better term. Um, but the Obama presidency allowed for the government to distribute tools for uncensored internet connections, known as Internet in a Box, to countries that have not been publicly listed so that was in the book, and I thought that was interesting. And Laird denies being a spy. Like, I don't even remember exactly how he joined. I think he was just doing, like, hacker stuff on his own, and he kept emailing the members and being like, I think you guys are interesting. How about we, you know, do some stuff together? And eventually they were like, all right, you're doing cool things. You can, you can join us. But this was, like, a weird introduction to the group, I feel like. And so he, like, denies being a spy, but, like, the Hong Kong blonde story, the, he does some later international work, and he has relationships with intelligence agencies. This has caused many people to wonder, like, to this day. They're like, what's the deal with Laird? He does make, like, a big splash and do a lot of good things for people. So at the end of the day, I think people are just kind of, like, not too concerned about it. But, like, he is very weird and, like, a little suspicious. We can be a little skeptical of him. That's okay. So let's talk more about hacktivism, since that's kind of the road we're going down so regardless of that mess I just told you about, the group did get more inspired to be active with hacktivism, and this eventually inspired other hacktivist groups, including Anonymous, which I won't go into a ton of detail about because that's going to have its own episode. But at the next 2001 DEF CON, CDC focused on hacktivism and invited Patrick Ball, and this is a quote from Min. Patrick Ball was deputy director of a rights project at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. In El Salvador alone, Ball told the enthralled DEF CON audience his team had recorded 9,000 witness accounts describing torture, kidnappings, and extrajudicial killings. He compiled one database with report crimes against 17,000 victims and another with the careers of thousands of people in the military then merged them to discover which officers kept appearing in the worst abuse cases. He found 100 who stood out, each with more than 100 apparent crimes at his hands or under his watch, and got them fired from their positions. Crazy. Here's another example. So CDC member Adam O'Donnell, known as Java Man, also worked on a CIA project to reverse engineer the Great Firewall of China, which was the nickname for the system China uses to control internet traffic into and out of the country and figure out how to get content inside. The reverse proxies Adam built allowed people in the U.S. to make it appear that they were in China, 
mainly so they could see what the firewall was blocking. It also made it easier for those Americans to share information with people who really were in China. Finally, it put the CIA in a better position to monitor descendant traffic or hack Chinese targets without raising alarms and foreign intrusion. That was also a quote from Min. So at the 2001 DEF CON, CDC also introduced the new spinoff group that they'd created, or Laird created, called Hacktivismo? 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 Um, the Hacktivismo Declaration cited Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which held that everyone has a right to freedom of opinion and expression, including the right to receive information. Which, like, yeah, okay. So this group created a privacy-protecting browser called Peekabooty, which I fucking love, and that would allow people in censored countries to obtain uncensored content through encrypted connections. Peekabooty was a huge influence for Tor, which came out in 2002. We talked about Tor in the Deep Dark Web episodes, so go give that a listen. I'm not going to go into like a ton of detail about that, but in 2006, Hacktivismo slash CDC slash Ninja Strike Force member named Steve Toplitz released a modified version of Firefox called Zero Bank that could work from a USB. It was designed to work with Tor and allowed people to use it on public computers without leaving a trace. Tor then released its own browser as part of a bundle, and according to Min, by 2006, more users were relying on Tor to evade censorship, not to stay anonymous, and China had become the third largest market with about 10,000 daily users. So that's crazy. I mean, people still use it for to be anonymous, um, but at this point, they were using it to evade censorship, and they still do that. So I thought this was interesting. It's just kind of like a random fact. But when Google launched Android, Nathan Freitas created a version of Tor for phones, which is interesting to me because Android is open source and so much more vulnerable to malware. So it's kind of like, it feels like an oxymoron. Like, I guess you would use Tor because they're more susceptible to malware. But this leads me to the topic of cyber warfare. So remember, we're in 2001. After 9-11 and the dot-com bust, more countries started spying on each other online. According to Min, the same big companies that excelled at examining and explaining malicious software that served organized crime shied away from being as clear when they realized that the culprits were the governments controlling major markets for their security software. Governments themselves stayed mum because the intelligence agencies maintained dominance over cyber offense and defense within the bureaucracy, and such agencies preferred not to reveal what they knew. So it's like this big web of everybody knowing everything. Hackers began disappearing and reappearing on the scene. Many hackers, including CDC and NSF members, were enlisted by intelligence agencies or the Pentagon to help protect the country, punish al-Qaeda, and to work on other interesting projects that were arising as a sign of the times. A lot of their work went into play in Afghanistan and Iraq, and apparently many hackers could not pass the background checks to work for the government and worked for subcontractors as like a workaround. Some of these hackers later came forward and said that they were forced to do really bad things to people in order to keep government information secure. This is crazy. The book goes into so much detail about all of this. I mean, I really, really tried to pick and choose like a good storyline from the book, but there's so many details about so many things in there. You should really read it if you're interested in this. Let's talk about Citizen Lab. The Citizen Lab is an interdisciplinary lab based at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, Canada, and that's from their website. It was founded by Ronald Debert, Debert in 2001. 
So they're an independent academic research group, and that gave it like the power to write about its findings in a way that hackers, businesses, governments, and intelligence agencies at this time could not because they're independent. They're like, we don't really serve anybody. We just need to put this information out there. So the Citizen Lab did some research and ultimately ended up blowing their whistle. It came out that Canada had been piggybacking off of China and their internet spy efforts. Google came out and said that they had also been hacked by the Chinese, which was crazy because Google had some of the best technical defense available. The Chinese went after human rights advocates and Google's code. Basically, the Chinese broke into repositories housing source code for many large companies, and they added to the codes to make it look like there were programming mistakes, but really they added backdoors for Chinese spies to access customer information. The NSA came in to help, and people were appreciative of that until Edward Snowden leaked NSA information only a few years later, which we're going to do an episode on, so I'm not going to go into that. But there is some information about that in the book. Not a ton, but it does talk about that. So a lot's going on, and the CDC is becoming bigger There's cyber warfare, people's opinions are getting involved, Um, other people are joining or like learning things about CDC and using it for their own benefits. So let's talk about some of these, I guess, bad seeds, if you will, that are joining the CDC. So first, let's talk about Jacob Applebaum, who goes by Jake. He's very problematic. So Jake's mother was mentally ill and his father was an addict. And he was in group homes where like eventually he dropped out of high school and he taught himself to code. And he began working for Greenpeace and the Rainforest Action Network, which, like, yeah, that sounds cool. Jake met tour leaders Roger (laughs) Dingledine and Nick Mathewson at at a DEF CON conference, and they began volunteering before becoming staff in 2008, or he began volunteering. He also was a huge part of WikiLeaks, which might get its own episode as well. WikiLeaks is kind of crazy. I don't really know that much about it, to be completely honest with you. But the CDC liked WikiLeaks until they didn't. So according to Min, originally the site published documents focused on government wrongdoing and it worked with media partners that sifted through for important stories while not printing information that could lead to the deaths of those cooperating with American officials abroad. Eventually, WikiLeaks would become a huge participant in Trump's election and CDC did not support this. So let's get into it. Jake was problematic. Jake at one point worked for San Francisco bondage porn site kink.com, which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But he just made like, he just made it very, he talked about it too much. He was like, yeah, I work for kink.com. So he made sure people knew about it. And he was known for sexually propositioning people at like the first meeting with them, even in professional contexts. He attended private sex parties, which apparently is less rare in hacker culture than elsewhere, which, like, I mean, that's fine. Like, do your thing. I'm cool with it. Like, I'm down. But I just, I was, I don't know, I I was just surprised that, like, that was, like, a, I guess a more common thing in the hacker community. Um, But apparently, even, even so, he was still considered pushy in these contexts as well. He often chose people that were more subordinate and vulnerable as his victims, and they were worried that he would ostracize them for, or like within the community, if they um, fought back or made statements about him. Since he had he had such a huge presence, like he was this 
crazy activist who like pulled all these stunts and he was like the face of Tor and like did all this great stuff, yada, yada, yada. According to Min, he targeted more junior people in the Tor community where complaints led to a 10-day suspension for suspected harassment in the spring of 2015. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation head, Sherry Steele, took over as Tor executive director later that year. Chelsea Comlo, unfortunately, was one of Jake's victims. She states that she blacked out after a night out in Berlin with other co-workers. It was like after a work event of some sort, and they were like, let's go party and like have a good time together. And she blacked out, and when she woke up, Jake was trigger warning. Jake was raping her. And she confided in coworkers who apparently had similar experiences with Jake, and they ended up going to steal for help. And they created a website where they housed information about their experiences for others to come forward and hopefully to warn other women. Jake did resign on Thursday, June 2nd, 2016. However, there were no charges pressed or legal action against Applebaum for his behavior. I guess it's all allegations, so, like, I can't really, I mean, I'm not not saying that it happened, but I'm not saying that it did happen. Did that make sense? You know what I mean? Okay. So, it's disappointing. I don't even think I mentioned that he was a part of the CDC at this point. I think he was, though. So, like, he got, he was doing all this stuff. He was working for Tor. He's doing all these amazing things. He's doing all this hacktivism. So, he ends up being a part of CDC um, so when this all comes out, this news is heartbreaking, disappointing, disgusting to the CDC, especially as a group that adamantly wanted to dismantle male domination in the hacker community. Like they were always trying to bring women in and like they had like some of the first women hackers in their group and they prided themselves on that. Not that they need to be like, you know, patted on the back because like whatever. But I mean, it is a male dominated um, industry. So unfortunately, members of the CDC had actually experienced some of Jake's nasty behaviors in both sexual and manipulative, manipulative sociopathic ways. Once all of this came to light, they like started talking, they're emailing back and forth. They're like, whoa, what is going on? Did you see this? And they began sharing stories of experiences that they had had with Jake that seemed odd at the time. But now that all of this was coming out, they were like, okay, like this is kind of clicking and making sense like this guy's kind of an asshole basically so the cdc made a statement and i'm going to read it to you like much of the hacker community we were troubled to hear the allegations of sexual abuse manipulation and bullying leveled against one of our members jacob applebaum aka io error we're also aware that the tour project is conducting an internal investigation and encourage anyone with relevant testimony to come forward for some it won't be easy There can be shaming or humiliation or the fear of not being believed. It is also our responsibility to create an environment where people feel safe to come forward. We have always stood for freedom of speech and expression, which sometimes necessitates the right to anonymity. (laughs) I don't know why I can't say that right. This is something that victims of abuse often require. We stand by their right to be anonymous. Others, like our friend Nick Farr, who decided to go public with his own difficulties, deserve our respect and support. Everyone will do this in their own way. We know that it may be scary, but we also encourage victims to contact their appropriate local authorities. We understand the complicated relationship we all have with law enforcement, but there is a time and place for government intervention. If the most extreme of these allegations are true, they should be addressed in a court of law and dealt with appropriately. Cult of the dead cow is known for a lot of things, but treating people horribly is not one of them. If communities are to thrive and remain relevant, 
we have to do some house cleaning from time to time. As we've become more aware of the anonymous accusations of sexual assault, as well as the stories told by individuals we know and trust, we've decided to remove Jake from the herd effective immediately. So yes, some people were anonymous, some people came out straightforward. I think, um, and all of it is detailed, like the, the stories and stuff in the book. And Nick Farr, I think, was one who like, they were at a convention and they were supposed to have somebody come speak, but it was somebody who like Jake was like, that guy thinks that I'm bad and so you shouldn't have him on the panel. And he like used coercive and like aggressive tactics to get him to take him off the panel. I think that was Nick's story. That was somebody's story, but just weird things like this. Like it's a very, very common recurring theme that people were saying. Also during the height of the Me Too movement in the fall of 2017, um, this was like right before it, but the hacker community rose up against other accused predators within the community, including um, someone named his handle was Captain Crunch and his real name is John Draper. He was an original freaker who had discovered that whistles given out with Captain Crunch cereal blew 2600 hertz. So I guess he got that like in his cereal box and he blew it and he figured this out. But that hurts would allow you to do free calls and therefore you could continue freaking. And that was where he got his handle. But he was outed for pursuing underage boys and he was banned from gatherings and conventions and stuff, which is grody. Y'all ready for some more problematic behavior? So apparently the Ninja Strike Force housed the more right-leaning CDC members, which they discussed, like, originally when they joined, they weren't outwardly this way, but, like, as tensions have been rising in the last, like, 10 years or so, it, I guess it came to light. And so they began posting, like, racist comics and jokes to their 4chan and Facebook accounts, and it got out of hand. The CDC, like, the OG group had to get involved. And during the 2016 election, racist hackers joined the NSF, adopting CDC methods and using them to carry out hate. The CDC members were very disappointed. Some of the members had also broken off into another group called DSSK Corp. Some of the members of the, the Ninja Strike Force did this. And among these members, there were white nationalists, neo-Nazis, Trump supporters. One member particularly, Timothy Matlock Noonan, was responsible for this. And he went to visit Andrew Aurenheimer, who was a very well-known internet troll, Trump supporter. And he helped support Trump, encourage people to attend the Charlottesville riot, and more. So this all spills into the drama about Trump's election, Russia's involvement, and how social media was like purposefully showing specific content to different people and citing extremist behaviors. It's all very crazy. There's a lot of it in the book. Um, go read it. So I'm not ripping off this guy's book. And I'll probably do an episode just on that stuff as well. So I have one more person I want to specifically talk about, and that is Robert Beto O'Rourke. And you guys might know who that is. So Beto was an early member of the CDC who happened to grow up into politics and run against Ted Cruz for the Texas Senate seat. He also ran for president in 2020. And the news came out about his CDC membership and people were like either enthralled or appalled. I loved that. Oh my God, that just did it for me. Enthralled or appalled. I love myself for writing that. Okay. So after the El Paso shooting in 2019, Beto made a stance that as president, he would launch a mandatory buyback of semi-automatic weapons. Beto endorsed Joe Biden as a fellow gun control supporter, which people speculate tipped Texas away from Bernie Sanders, giving Biden a better advantage in one of the biggest voting states. Beto credited CDC with influencing his way of thinking. He was fighting to restore net neutrality, like 
okay, that's cool, which prevented internet connection providers from favoring some web content. Um, and a lot of the CDC members were, like, very supportive of him and Silicon Valley people. Um, a lot of people didn't like that he was in the CDC, but it kind of, like, started this new wave of people being like, oh, shit, like, we could have hackers in office. Like, that's really cool. Beto said, and this is a quote, I understand the democratizing power of the internet and how transformative it was for me personally and how it leveraged the extraordinary intelligence of these people all over the country who were sharing ideas and techniques. When you compromise the ability to treat all that equally, it runs counter to the ethics of the groups we were a part of. And factually, you can just see that it will harm small business development and growth. It hampers the ability to share what you're creating, whether it's an essay, a song, a piece of art, a podcast. I added that in there. And so that experience certainly informs what we're doing here now. There's just this profound value in being able to be apart from the system and look at it critically and have fun while you're doing it. I think of the cult of the dead cow as a great example of that. In doing that, you make our overall society stronger, as with just the vulnerabilities technologically that people were able to uncover and point out and be part of fixing. According to Min, Beto said history made him want to push a broader discussion about making the most out of gifted technologists and other thinkers with unconventional ideas, which can have more impact because they break with patterns and tradition. Now, I don't really know much about Beto um, politically. I'm also probably not the most politically active person as I should be, and I'll just admit that. But, um, I mean, all of that sounds dope, but I don't really know much about the rest of his, um, uh, like, his panel or like whatever he's supporting his platform so I don't really I'm not like endorsing anything but I do think that all of that sounds great so in conclusion the CDC supports all endeavors as long as they're principled in nature so they stand for having a strong personal ethical code and sticking to it they also believe that people from all different backgrounds can come together to accomplish incredible feats men said it best though and I'm going to quote him a movement cannot control its children the Citizen Lab and Tor are one thing. Those were great. While Lull's Security and Gamma Group are another. I didn't touch on them too much. Um, if you know, you know. Trolling and fake news also owe something to the CDC, and neither is anything to be proud of. So that was kind of like a, a way to say that like the CDC, which a lot of people don't know about, which is super interesting to me because it's not really a thing anymore, but the CDC has influenced the way that the internet has come to be. And this crazy, like, cybersecurity world that we live in. And I wonder what it would be like if we didn't have groups like the CDC and all these other groups that it inspired or that it was inspired by. Um, but, like, bad things came of it, too. <laughs> but, like, good things came of it. So it's just one of those things. It's, like, it was an integral part of history. Um, Mudge made huge splashes in the cybersecurity world, and he led the cybersecurity efforts at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, which I talked about in Deep Dark Web 2, powering both U.S. military defense and offense. Christian Rue, his um, handle was Dildog. I think I didn't get Kevin Wheeler's. His was, no, his was Grandmaster Rat. I didn't say that yet. Kevin Wheeler's handle was Grandmaster Rat. I hate that. Um, so Christian Dildog Rue continued to work and make the internet safer by rejecting an offer to work for the government continuing to work with At Stake, transitioning into working for Veracode, and then finally a side project called Hailstone, which would allow developers to test their code for security flaws as they write it. And basically the largest proportion of the Cult of the Dead Cow members wound up just working at like tech companies or doing their own thing, 
working with people who didn't know their history. Like not every people in this group came out. Well, in the CDC, I think all the active members, I'll read them to you, but in all these hacktivism groups and just hacker groups in general, like a lot of people are private about that shit and they don't want people to know about it. Um, especially with like, they don't want to be arrested. So, you know, it just depends on what they've got going on. But basically by the 2018, (laughs) by the 2018, by 2018, the cult of the dead cow had basically like faded away. I don't really know if it's what's going on with it anymore at this point. So let's look at some of the members. Kevin Wheeler's name was Swamp Rat, but he like graduated to Grandmaster Rat. Bill Brown was Frankengibe. I really don't want to say all these names. Psychedelic Warlord. That was Beto O'Rourke. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like a whole list of like 25 people that were in it. And then the Ninja Strike Force, Legion of Doom. But these aren't all the people. These are just people that like came out and were okay with their names being out there. So that is Cult of the Dead Cow. I think it's super interesting. I love weird shit like that. I wish I could, like, be in it. I know someone that I feel like, like, the with his age and his background and everything, like, he's kind of, I think he was, like, a part of some of these groups, and I want to ask him about it, but, like, we're not really friends anymore, so I can't. If you hear this and you know who you are and you are a part of this, let's talk about it. But, yeah, I'm going to wrap it up because I need to go to fucking sleep because I got work in the morning. But I love you guys. Y'all know what to do. Get stickers, five-star ratings, share it with your friends and your family. I love you all so much. Please follow me at Profskep Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And you can email me at professionalskepticismpodcast at gmail.com. Stay sus, skeptics. I love you. Mwah.